Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Happy New Year to you all. A new year and well, great opportunities for England, obviously, this summer. Probably the biggest summer of cricket ever in England, certainly since the 1970s with the World Cup and the Ashes. And in this programme, we're going to look at uh, the new England director of cricket, Ashley Giles. We've got some comments from him. We're also going to draw some tickets for the Ashes Test match at Lords, that's after the break. So stay listening for that. Uh, we're going to review the Australia-India four-test series. That amazing win by India, two-one in the series, their first ever win on Australian soil in a Test series. And we're going to answer your daughter's riddle, Simon, <laughs> as well. Marina's riddle last week. We'll play a little bit of that after the break. Do you know the answer to that? I do know the answer to it, but I needed her to really slow down and speak very slowly before have I was able to her, work it out. Have you taught her much about elocution? Not yet, just, no, not yet. That's all, that's all to come. Help. She teaches me things, tells me what to do. <laughs> anyway, um, the, the announcement a couple of weeks ago that, that Ashley Giles was taking over as the director of cricket for England, taking over, obviously, Andrew Strauss's mm. role... Um, He's been talking to the to the press a little bit. Uh, so I guess he's got a, a few things to deal with, but in a way he takes over at quite a handy time yeah. with England playing so well. But, you know, their, their test performances have been resurrected and their one-day performances are, a bit, you know, through the roof. You need to be careful, though, when you seemingly everything is going swimmingly. Remember Paul Downton took over in 2013. He's... England just won the Ashes at home. He was appointed, and then he was going to take over full time after the Ashes in Australia. And England, you know, everything disintegrated. That 2013 Ashes winning team disintegrated, and we had, you know, Kevin Peterson situation, and, and you know, it took a long time for the England team to to recover from that. And then, of course, you know, we went on to 2015, and there was the the, the World Cup debacle. So you know, you, you think everything is moving forward nicely, and things can go wrong. But I mean, it's an incredible summer ahead. And England's test team have had an excellent last six months of the year. And the one-day side, world number one, everything going exceedingly well. 
but you know, again, that could all that could all fall apart in a semi-final defeat, couldn't it? If if, if they get there, it's it's been an interesting sort of couple of years for Giles, hasn't it? Because he he was he took over as England's one-day coach yeah. for a while, and then he stopped that. He was sort of got rid of there. Well, I, I was there the day that they lost to Holland or the Netherlands in the, the World T20 in Chittagong. And I remember going round the boundary and you could, see, you could see this game slipping away from them. You think, they can't lose to the Netherlands again in the World T20 because it happened, of course, at Lords in 2009. They can't lose again. Ashley Giles is in charge. He was, it sort of felt at the time, whether it was the case or not, it felt at the time he was on trial for his job. You know, he was going to become the next coach. And then he saw this debacle on happening in front of you and you thought oh no and for him you know because he, he, he was a shoe-in for the job or seemingly a shoe-in for the job as head coach as head coach well, yeah. favorite for the job anyway that's, yeah. that's how it seemed at the time whether he was a shoe-in or not I mean clearly he wasn't because he didn't get the it job just shows but, that uh, you know coaches are hostage to yeah. performance well, exactly. I remember walking around the boundary thinking I've got to, I've got to speak to Ashley Giles this is, this is an awful moment for him and he, and he came out and he merged at the end of the game and he, he just, I mean, his face, you know, told the mm. story, just like, it, it, utterly crestfallen. I mean, he put a brave face on it, he spoke really well, but he, he must have known. It was a devastating performance for, you know, for the England team and, and for him personally, I mm. think. And it, it, it obviously it reflects on the coach, doesn't it? It's very hard to then appoint a coach who's just lost to the Netherlands in, in the World T20. And then, of course, he was a selector, one of the three selectors with Angus Fraser and, and Mike Newell from Knotts. And then they disbanded that selection committee and brought in Ed Smith. And, of course, he's been director of cricket at, at Warwickshire all that time as well. So he's had a, a mixed career. I guess, in a way, director of cricket sits above selectors and coaches, so you're less vulnerable, perhaps, mm. than some of the people at the coalface. Yeah, what, what, what does the managing director of England cricket do? What, what, what's, what does the director of cricket do? What, what's, their, what's their job? Well, it's, their job is to appoint the coaches mm-hmm. and the captain uh, with in consultation, I suppose, with the coaches. It's, I think it's also to make sure... I know Strauss had a lot of involvement in Loughborough and the coaching bit below the top level, Lions, the, the academy, uh, very much Loughborough uh, and, and all that, which got nicknamed Bluffborough for a while, I think slightly unfairly. So that why, whole infrastructure... Why Bluffborough? Well, because they were sort of bluffing their way through, I suppose. That was the, that was the theory. But uh, I feel there are a lot of pretty hard-working, interesting people at Loughborough. But uh, you do need a a bit of a refresh every so often. I mean, coaches are like teachers. You know, you can get bored with them. They can sort of trot out the same things over and over again. And sometimes you need a bit of uh, new blood, a a few new ideas, new concepts. So I suppose Giles' job primarily will be to think about the succession for Trevor Bayliss, yeah. who's giving up his coaching role at the end of the summer, and they need to find somebody for the winter onwards, and that probably might apply to Paul Farbrace as well, because Farbrace and Bayliss are, are very much kind of, you know, Tweedledum and Tweedledee in a way, aren't they? Uh, so that's a, a thing for him to look, look ahead to. And the interesting thing is, listening to him talking today, was there was the question was posed... Can you split the job now? Is it too demanding to have a coach doing both test cricket and one-day cricket? And he was slightly sitting on the fence on that one. I guess back when we we first split coaches with Andy with the test team, me with the one-dayers, we thought we might see the paths of players going similarly. I think what we've seen, actually, is, is players coming together more. We've got a very adaptable group of players who can play across forms. And actually... If you look at where those players come from, our county system, it's very unlikely nowadays you're going to try and develop 
one skill players or one form players because it's just not efficient. There are still going to be guys who only play one form, but um, you know the the other bit for me to consider is just the culture of the team because naturally with with different leaders you have different sorts of cultures and and that was certainly the case with me and Andy. Doesn't make either culture wrong. We're just different people, so you lead differently and. Uh, if you've got different leaders and the same group of players in a room, then that can have its own challenges as well. I think whatever we do, whether it's two coaches or one coach, I think we need to make it normal and acceptable that, that coaches have time off and are able to go and watch some cricket or just have a break. Um, and in that way, you can also develop your other coaches to lead. The, the, the programme, the way it is over the next couple of years, is extremely busy. To expect one head coach or two head coaches to be there all the time is going to be um, it's quite challenging. What do you think then? Can you split the jobs or does England need one coach? It's a very good question, actually. And I think that in the past, the last four years, probably was worth splitting the job because the two formats, test match, one day formats, were diverging quite significantly. And you've got almost completely different squads arriving for a one day series and the test squad going home. But I think now... If you look at the England side, there are more and more players playing both. They've sort of realised that, you know, they want to be involved in all formats. And so sometimes players have to be rested from, you know, one day series or whatever. But generally, players want to play both. So actually, you can see a a, a logic in having a coach operating in both formats, uh, the same coach or the same coach and his deputy, and they can share it as Bayliss and Farbrace have. Bayliss sort of take over in one series in charge, and then he'll have a rest, and Farbrace will be in charge for a one day series or something like that. So that's worked quite well. And the other thing is for me that the, the head coaches are facilitators principally bringing in the experts, the specialists in batting, bowling, fielding, keeping, spin bowling, etc. And so they can still bring in appropriate specialists for different formats. Yeah, the only thing is, I mean, it seems to me that the, the, for the head coach, he's such a demanding role there. England plays so much cricket, you're there not just you know, right from the start, right to the end of every tour, but also doing the planning for each tour and then the debriefing after each tour. There is so much to yeah. do mm. and the demands are so great. Is it worth having someone who looks after white ball cricket someone who looks after red ball cricket? I mean, that's the argument. That's what Ashley Giles, that's the, the, the solution he'll have to sort out, isn't it? The problem he'll have to sort out. Yeah, it's not a simple one. I, I don't know. I, do, I just don't think you do. You want necessarily too many different philosophies mm. coming into the same, to essentially the same group of players. But you're, you're right. Someone like Johnny Bairstow, I think, played something like 73 days of cricket for England in a year. So, you know, that's one in five days. I mean, that, that's, that is plus all the training and travelling as well. So it is incredibly demanding. The coaches have even more demands in a way than the players because there's so much they've got to do behind the scenes. Which is one thing you would say is a player would hope to have an England career if you're really successful that would last, say, 10 or 12 years for a coach. I mean, Trevor Bayliss, is, you know, there is a shelf life, isn't there? There's a, there's a certain length of time, four years, say, when you do the job, you put everything into it. You earn very good money. An England coach earns very good money. You, you, you're almost, I mean, not quite set up for life, but it, it helps you, certainly helps you set up for the rest of your life to be the England coach for four years. But it is a, it is an extremely demanding role. I suppose what it comes down to is, is do you need a different coaching philosophy for the, the two different roles? But you, you're saying that actually the two, the, the sort of two teams, the England in the England, 
England situation. There are there's a lot of the, there's a lot of overlap between the two sets well, of players. I think that the one of the key roles for the limited overs format is data analysis, mm. and if you get somebody that's really sharp on that, uh, getting the right sources. Uh, that you know, I've been to a place in Chennai for recently, which uh, is basically like the Big Brother of cricket, looking at every game played all around the world, videoing it, recording it, making sort of packages, video packages about individual players. Looking at, hey, for instance, they were looking at Imran Tahir's leg breaks and googlies and the different grips, and then sending those out to their appropriate clients to help them deal with Imran Tahir's variations and making lots of. Uh, statistical packages of how to approach certain players or certain situations there's lots of data available out there you need one person to be able to assimilate all that and come up with sensible strategies which then can be sort of passed on to the coach and they can buy into it or not as as the case may be I think you still can do that with one main coach yeah who was that main coach going to be though Someone like Stephen Fleming I would think about because he's done very well in the, the the shorter format but he obviously made his career playing very well for New Zealand in test cricket. He's a, he's a very, you know, loads of integrity, been all around the world. You probably want somebody who's a bit more au fait with English cricket which I think Trevor Bayliss, is, that was his one drawback was when he first came into the job he said well I don't yeah. watch county cricket I don't know him and yeah. I haven't seen him play before and he was perhaps you know it was perhaps a bit foolish to say that because you can look at everything on video nowadays anyway so you didn't have to admit you haven't seen anyone before and that just sounds a bit feeble as a coach but he sort of corrected that over time I, I'm now arguing for somebody who's also overseas it would be great if we had a a, a home bread coach you know an English coach but you've got to look around the world and see who's the best at the job and at the moment you know the English coaches are not sought after in overseas franchises and mm. things why that is I'm not quite sure well actually Giles was asked about that in, in this press conference do you want a, an overseas coach do you think should be an English coach and he again he, he sort of said well pre- he sort of said preferably an English coach that, that was what we would like and we need to develop English coaches but I'm you know I'm not ruling out an, an overseas coach so, so there we are with that, it could, you know, the field is is wide open. One other little thing, very important, the coaching role. Got to be able to be a left-handed nicker for the slips because Phil Neal, who's been with the England team forever, twenty odd years, is the right-handed nicker. Right. Uh, you know, edging the ball for the slips for right-handed batsmen. But in the past, we've had Andy Flower, we've had you know Strauss, people like that around who can do the left-handed nicking, but they haven't really got anybody to do left-handed nicking now. I can't think of the, that. There isn't anybody on the coaching staff who can do that, and it's very valuable. With a lot of left-handed batsmen around, you need someone who's good at that left-handed nicking. So that's why Stephen Fleming fits the bill. <laughs> you can't, can't just bring someone in a left-handed <laughs> nicker for the day to prepare the players no, true. for an hour before each day's play. No, it's a bit facetious. Yeah. But it's it's a useful little thing on your CV. I yeah. can I'm good at nicking. Yeah. So the so Trevor Brace is going after the the Ashes the end of the season, and then it's on to New Zealand and South Africa. So the coach will have to be in, the new coach will have to be in in place for that. That's mm. that's the future. But I mean, there's an awful lot to focus on uh, before that happens. Yeah. And I suppose the, the other thing, Rashley Giles as well, and that the big question is. Is he go, as the new managing director of England cricket? Is is he going to let the players play football? <laughs> and uh, he uh, says that he's got very strong views about this. Uh, let's hear them. Everyone knows my thoughts on football. Um, 
and I, and I will discuss that with the captains and the coaches. But I think when you talk about short-term derailers, um, I don't want to be blamed for losing the World Cup because we're not playing football in a month's time. But um, it's certainly, if you look at what football does, the benefits from a psychological point of view and fun point of view, I think are outstripped by the, the dangers. But we will discuss that. I'm not coming in with, a, with an iron rod right now. So it sounds as if football's banned before the World Cup, I reckon, and maybe they'll get it back for the Ashes. Mm. I don't know. But it sounds as if he just thinks the risks are, are too much. Yeah. And jo- I'm, p- I'm sure Johnny Bairstow would probably agree. Yeah, well, but a lot of the players, they, I mean, they like it. It's, yeah. it's part of the sort of camaraderie of touring. We've talked about this before. That, Stress you know, relief as much as anything. Yeah, if you, if you, but also exercising and getting ready, yeah. warmed up for the, for the day. Yeah, I mean, you always hear Bumble say, I'm, you know, I haven't seen Manchester United go out and play cricket before they, you know, they're playing Liverpool or Bayern Munich or whatever in the, in the Champions League. Um but, it, but you see the South Africans play rugby, don't you? Touch rugby before hmm. um, as part of that. You know, actually, in in defence of the football, which everyone says, oh, it's a bit of a risk. You know, and then Sam Billings on this show a few weeks ago said, well, you could get injured doing anything, yeah. and he's right yeah. because Billy Stanlake uh, in the Big Bash Australian fast bowler trod on the boundary rope doing a, one of those close boundary catching in practice, and he was out. And actually, I saw today Ashton Agar, the left arm spinner, just went over on his ankle catching the ball at extra cover, throwing it to mid-off during a game and had to go off. So, you know, you can get injured anyhow, but it seems as if that potential collision of players who are naturally competitive in a footballing environment and a little bit inclined to show off if there's a bit of a crowd watching that warm-up game, there, there is a little bit of a risk there, I can see. Actually, I think it's surprising that the, the more, more injuries there, there haven't been more haven't, injuries. Yeah, Actually, yeah. There, there, there have been relatively few football yes. injuries over the years. So I think that you should bear that in mind as well. So you, there's a few, there's a space of them coming up. Well, no, what I'm what I'm saying is, is that inevitably, as, as you just said, you could get injured doing anything. Inevitably, over the years, uh, people are going to get injured, just, you know, doing cricket warm ups or you know, bowling in the nets or whatever. So. Is football that big a deal? I, I, I'm not sure it necessarily is. That, that, that's my point, is that they've played so much football over the years and there have been so few injuries that, that really, is it, is it such a, a Let's get the issue? ping-pong table out instead. <laughs> Wheel a ping-pong table out on the well, outfield. I gave a chess beforehand. <laughs> and then someone, then someone would hurt their finger, wouldn't they, oh, mo- God, moving the piece. That. Or throw something down with, with annoyance when their king was taken exactly. and, and lose no, it. You, well, if, you, if, you, if you have your king taken, that's the end of... End of a chess match. I yeah. know, but it's, you throw, but you're going to throw your pieces out and you know slam the board on your fingers or whatever. Yeah. God, but good luck to Ashley Giles. He's a great man. He's done a business degree recently, so he's good on the sort of man management side. He knows the game inside out. He's got lots of assets. Well, the other the point you say he knows the game inside. He knows the county game as well. So there's there's, there's a quite a good bridge between him and you know, all the county coaches and those who, who run the county game. I think there was a feeling among some of the counties that Andrew Strauss was a bit distant from the the county game was Ashley Giles is sort of embedded in the in the county yes. game his jobs at Lancashire and Warwickshire so that might be a a bit you know and, a it, and he's a straightforward honest as the day is long guy you won't get any you know bullshit from him you know he's a very decent man and presumably his appointment will coincide with a spate of uh, sales of the King of Spain <laughs> mugs at Edgebaston as well, so they're going to be pleased. Yeah. Better tell the story, those who don't know it, the King of Spain. Well, it was a misprint, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, it was He was King of Spin during the Ashes one year, and there was a misprint on the mugs, and it came out as King of Spain. Yeah. But they sold probably more as a result of it coming out as King of Spain than King of Spin. 
Long live the King of Spain. Correct. And we'll take a break at that point and we'll come back and review Australia-India and give you the Ashes ticket winners. Right, now the first thing we're going to do in this second half is answer Marina's riddle, (laughs) I think. Very important. Okay. So let's just hear it first. In a forest there's a river, in a river there's a boat, in a boat there's a girl with the green, green coat. And if you don't know her name, you better listen again, because I said it in the middle of the riddle, what's her name? Okay, so what's the answer? Anne. Anne. So Anne is in the middle there somewhere. That is the name of the girl. Now... If you've got any other riddles that are maybe cricket-related, do send them in. We'd, we'd like to hear them. We can read one out per podcast. The email address is theanalystpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us as well, at theanalyst or at cricket underscore man with a double N mm. and we'll read out the best riddle of the week. So, uh, no winners for that one. Well, you're the winner because you... <laughs> You know, it took me a long, long time to get it, and she had to say it very slowly before I okay, got it. OK, without further ado, we should announce the winners, the real winners, of the Ashes tickets. This is for the Saturday of the Lord's Test, the second test of the Ashes series in August. And the winners are from your emails and your suggestions of things that the cricket could do to innovate. Tom Coles, James Webb, John Boys, and Louise Bostock... And all of you, at some point, will receive two tickets to the Lord's Test for the Saturday. So, hope you enjoy those. Uh, the main thing is to send us your email address first, but I'll communicate with you on that. So, congratulations and thanks for all your support. And keep the uh, emails coming in for suggestions for topics, comments, uh, the, the fact that you like Bristol or don't like Bristol, <laughs> you know, anything you like. So, with that Ashes sort of segue... Australia, India, which both of us have been watching. I've been watching it sort of sitting up in the night. I think you've been watching it on uh, sort of record in the morning. And uh, it was a fascinating series. Here's a great fact. Marcus Harris's 79 Mm. in the series was the highest score by an Australian in the series, and it's the lowest, highest score by an Australian in a home test series for 100 years. It's incredible, isn't it? And the axe has been wielded. For, yes. for the Sri Lanka series. Well, he survived because yeah, he survived, he got yeah. the, the highest score. Got two of the highest scores, in fact. But in come Joe Burns, Will Bukowski and Matt Renshaw for the Sri Lanka series. So the Marsh brothers, who a year ago, I was in Sydney. Were they bo- England They both scored hundreds in, in the last Ashes test at, at, at Sydney. They've gone. They're out. Uh, yeah, Finch has gone as well. Uh, who else has gone? Uncle Tom Cobbler, he's gone. But I mean, it, you know, it's, it's Hanscom. I mean, Hanscom, they, they, in and out, like a, you yeah. know, yo-yo, isn't it? It's, I, well, it's a bit like his innings. He's, he's in and then out. I mean, yeah. he's, he's really struggled. He doesn't look to have the te- doesn't doesn't look to have the technique to cope, does he? No. So, and, and the Australian selectors have have, have recognised that. I think. Was, I was, well, the Australian sort of, selectors. I mean, yeah. they are suffering a bit a serious outbreak of indecision. Well, it's a bit like a bit, a bit like the England selectors in the nineteen nineties, isn't it? Chopping or, and changing. Chopping and changing, or the late eighties, nineties, just chopping and changing. Not sure. Thirteen of... Australians have made their debut in the last two years. Yeah. They've had, and and they just sort of seem to be. And there's some more there you've just mentioned that, that are going to play in the Sri Lanka yeah. series. And you're, they're dragging people out of the ether. And the problem they've got is that they're they're, they're dropping somebody with a first class average of thirty three to replace them with somebody with an average of thirty two yeah. or thirty four. There's nobody out there who is really sort of saying pick me. And it, you know it goes back to Tim Payne actually after the series was asked. 
what did you think about the fact that Mike Hussey, when he made his test debut in 2005, had scored 10,000 first-class runs? Mm. And Tim Payne looked a bit exasperated and said, well... We don't produce players like Mike Hussey or Jamie Cox or Stuart Law anymore, and we've just got to work with what we've got. It's fantasy land to think we're going to produce players like that now. We don't produce those sort of cricketers. One of the other problems they've got, of course, as well, if you're picking for a test series, we're right in the middle of an extended big bash. So the, the first-class se- season in Australia has been suspended since... Well, yeah, so they've got nowhere to practice, nowhere, yeah. nowhere preparing, yeah. playing long innings. And, you know, Matt Renshaw recalled to the team, I think you said he's averaging 19 mm. or something in the Shield this year. Yeah. But Matthew Wade, who's had a great Shield year, can't get in the side because Tim Payne, t- because Tim Payne is the captain. And, and that's an irony because, you know, Australia were innovators themselves in the 90s. Adam Gilchrist raised the bar in terms of a number seven wicketkeeper who totally changed the game, 17 test hundreds, an average of nearly 50, totally just tore the game away from a team, ravaged tired bowlers, gave the Australians those huge totals to play with. And now they've got Tim Payne, who averages around 30-odd, in test cricket and less in first class. He's actually averaging 29 mm. in first class cricket. He only has one first class 100, no test 100s, and he's batting at number seven in that pivotal spot, which the, the Indians have shown the way there with Rishad Pant, who's you know p- pumping the ball all over the place at number seven. The Australians look like dinosaurs with Tim Bain, a lovely guy, but to me, inadequate as a wicketkeeper batsman at number seven. Yeah, they, they haven't, obviously, they haven't recovered from the, the, the sandpaper, sandpaper gate in, in South Africa. They're still you know, feeling the, the, the heat of that, really. They, they do have Smith to come back and potentially they have Warner to come back and possibly they have Bancroft to come back as well. Uh, Will they be able to just reintegrate uh, A, into the team and also get their games going, their international games going after such a long break remains to be seen. I know that Smith actually and Warner are playing in the the Bangladesh Premier League, which brings me on to quite a a side point, actually brings me on to something about comparing the Big Bash and the Bangladesh Premier League I've watched a lot of the Big Bash this year, commentated on it for for the BBC and also worked with with BT Sport as well, as you have. And I wonder whether the Big Bash is just losing a bit in in Mm. comparison with someone like the Bangladesh Premier League. I know it doesn't help when you've got Smith and Warner playing there, but you've got De Villiers, for example, is playing there. All the West Indians are are playing in the Bangladesh Premier League. Two overseas players in, in Big Bash. It's very much a sort of domestic competition to showcase the best Australian players. The pitches have not been great so far. So uh, I think the Big Bash is looking really ordinary. I've seen a few games and I, I think the standard is much lower than the Vitality Blast really? and probably the other tournaments that you mentioned there. It just looks... Uh, they're missing a lot of the international players. Obviously, the Test players and now the one-day international players are out and it just looks tame, actually, the Big Bash. Plus the fact they're now doing uh, a six-week, eight-weeks Big Bash with 14 games instead mm. of eight and so it's stretched out much longer. There's less intensity about it. The crowds are much thinner. It just doesn't have the same buzz at yeah. all. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? You can go for a year ago, Australia. Remember the remember the was it the four hands or the four fingers for the four nil? You know, everything was a, triumphant about Australian cricket. They just pumped England in the ashes. A year later, twelve months is a long time in cricket. It is, and they you know they are really struggling in England. Seem to have, seem to have gone the other way, and there's still time for them for it to go. Well, Australia wrong. are now, I think, sixth 
in the ICC rankings in Test cricket, and England are up to second. Mm. So it's amazing how it's changed actually in in twelve months. Now, one of the things we did uh, in this podcast last year was a high light and a low light, which we seem to have forgotten a bit recently. But I'm going to give you a low light. Well, actually, no, I'm going to give you a highlight and a low light. Yeah. I'm going to give you a highlight. Cheteshwa Pojara, mm. I mean, the most phenomenal series, 500 runs, guy who doesn't play any T20, hasn't played an IPL game for four years, hasn't played any T20 for a year and a half, yeah. and doesn't care about the riches. He was asked after the uh, the last test, in which he scored 193, whether he would think about, whether he cared about playing white ball cricket. No, he said, no, I'm happy to go home, work on my red ball skills and come back even stronger. They haven't got any tests till the summer now, mm. the Indians. But he, you know, sort of said, well, that's fine. You know, I'm happy to just go home and I've got a little baby at home. I've enjoyed my batting. I mean, his concentration, old school, mm. just total devotion to the crease, not playing anything out of his own comfort zone, absorbed, took a few blows on the body, but just stuck it out for his country. Fantastic performance. Um, the uh, Australians, they were sick of the sight of him by the end. Reminds me of Alistair Cook, I've seen... 2010-11, a big Australian saying, I'll, dr- I'll drive him to the airport, let's get, it, let's get him <laughs> yeah. out of our country. And it actually, that's, the series reminds me of 2010-11 as well, where you, a, a strong team from overseas goes to Australia there and, and sort of gets amongst them and turns them into a bit, bit of a rabble. I think that, that's, that's what's happened in this series. And India, they would have won, but for the Sydney weather, they would have won 3-1 and... Quite convincingly so as well. And the other highlight for me of that series was Jasper Bumrah's <coughs> bowling, phenomenal. And you know, not only was he constantly at the batsman all the time and producing unplayable deliveries, using variety, using the Yorker and the slower ball, which you don't see that often in Test cricket now, but he had the intelligence to change the game with key wickets with those sort of deliveries but also he's so accurate he just never let the batsman off the hook his economy rate in the series 2.27 that's up there with the West Indian greats of the 1980s just never let the batsman get away doesn't bowl bad balls whether he can sustain that pace and potency with that strange run-up and action, I don't know. You know, he learned to bowl in a corridor, and that's why his arms are so stiff and sort of close to his body all the time. What was it, indoor indoor cricket? Some kind of indoor, or like an indoor space, a a, a covered space with narrow sides, so he couldn't sort of let his arms swing. He couldn't be like a a Morny Morkel or a Malinga or someone like that with arms, you know, much wider arm span. But fantastic. Low light, yeah. going off for bad light, yeah. and Sydney. Low light, bad light. Low light, yeah. but I mean, what is this that players, uh, the umpires, who say, "Oh no, the light's looking a bit gloomy. The floodlights have overtaken the natural light, which is written into the playing conditions, so it's not entirely their fault." And then they go off for bad light with the floodlights blazing, uh, you know, top top whack. And you look at the, it's this empty ground, no fielders, no players on it, and the light looks fine. Uh, it's caused you know quite a lot of comment on Twitter here. Uh, you know, Dave, David Grant says, "Is this not madness? The lights are on. Cricket does itself no favours at times. Get on with it." I'm happily having a beer. So he was at the game. He couldn't believe it. It's a really good point, though. We play day-night Test cricket, but we can't play day Test cricket under lights. I mean, I put this tentatively put this suggestion forward and it's not ideal of course it's not ideal but surely it's about playing the game and some people say no it's about the integrity of of test match cricket and getting the balance right and I accept that totally but are we now in a situation where if there is bad light 
I'm sorry, we just get the pink ball out. And we say, right, yeah. I'm sorry, we're going to have to play yeah. with the pink ball for now. A pink ball that's, that's what simi- David Cook suggests to you. Yeah, actually. similarly aged. <laughs> Uh, to, to the one you're actually playing with, and then when the light improves, you go you go back to the red ball. I know I know it's not ideal, but surely you know, just having an empty ground and spectators in it and the lights are on, we can't we can't go on with this. No, I we mean, can't. you know, for example, for example, if you turn up on a, if you, as your batsman, if you turn up and it's a lovely sunny day, you think great, this is my day. But the next day, the opposition turn up and it's overcast and it's, it's the lights the draw, isn't it? Exactly. That's that's what I'm saying. That's all part it's part of the sort of variables of of Test match cricket. So I wonder whether we we need to look at that. I mean, I suspect they won't because cricket cricket is like that. It's hidebound by law, isn't yeah. it, all the time? And people say, well, actually, no, it just it would skew the game too much. And I accept actually the pink pink balls aren't great at the moment, so there perhaps there needs to be more study or more development of, of pink balls, get a better mm. quality of pink balls. But I mean, that that's strikes well, the one, me. well, the one that played they played with in England, the Duke's pink mm. ball, which they played with against the West Indies. It did. It did a fair bit, admittedly under mm. lights. It's not easy to bat against, but the ball's condition. I looked at it after eighty overs. It was absolutely fine yeah. when they changed it for a new one. It was still in good condition. So that that is definitely a, a feasible idea. We can't carry on losing this time. And, and also, while we're on this subject, you know, over rates. The Indians managed to bowl ninety overs in a day comfortably when the spinners were bowling and. That's another area. And so I think, you know, with the... I mean, this is something we can talk about again later, but with the World Test Championship starting in July and the first series are uh, in India and in the West Indies, actually, but the Ashes will be the sort of big grandstand opening of the World Test Championship. Points, 120 points per match available... They've got to start... I reckon they've got to start docking points for terrible over rates, and that will certainly pinch the players where it hurts. Well, I've gone on about overrates for a while, and people go, "Oh, well, he's going on about overrates again," and nothing more boring. But it actually, is boring. It, but, but it needs sorting. There's nothing more boring. You're a spectator. You paid your money, yeah. and you want you want to see players getting on with the game and, and giving full ninety overs in a day's play. It's, it's the old chestnut. You, know, you have a football match. And it's four all after eighty five minutes. You don't say, "Well, that was exciting for everybody. Let's just go home now." We've had, you've had your excitement for the day. Uh, we're going to knock off the last ten minutes of the game. You know, the last five minutes and five minutes of stoppage time. No, you go on, you play, you play it all, and see where it goes. So, yeah, get get on with the game and keep the game going as well. Um, I mean, I suspect using a pink ball in a in a, a red ball test match, it, you know, it will never happen. I suspect that you know might be the case, but it certainly is one solution to the problem if someone is prepared to be. You know, broad-minded about it. I mean, it needs everyone on board. I'm sure there'll be players going, no, 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 we don't want to do that. You know, especially batsmen, perhaps even some bowlers as well. I don't know. They don't like bowling with a pink ball, but it's it's about it's about this. You know, it's important for the spectators to keep the game going. It's important for the game. Very important. Well, sorry about that long-winded whinge. <laughs> um, listen, if you've got views on yeah. that, uh, overrates or bad light, you've got solutions, we'd love to hear them. The Analyst Podcast at gmail.com, let us know. Yeah, I mean, do you think that's viable? Your, your cricket supporters out there, do you, do you think that playing with a pink ball, substituting a pink ball in a red ball test match is acceptable, or do you think it's a step too far? I mean, I know people say you know, certain things are a step too far, but we, you know, we've gone a long way down the line in, in, in test match cricket with various things, you know, just having floodlights for a start, the fact that you can challenge an umpire's decision. You know, we, we've, we've come a long way since I started watching the games. You know, the game is always changing, and that change is a part of life, I'm afraid. Some people don't like change, but it's a part of life. So, is, is that a step too far? Let us know. Absolutely. Right, that's the end for this week. Uh, we'll, call it, we'll call it off this week. 
next yeah, week... Bad light stop play. Bad light stop play. <laughs> well, it is pretty gloomy out there. Um, next week, I've got an interview with a man who's just started his new job okay. at the headquarters of cricket. Now, who's that? Not Ashley Giles. Who's that? I don't know his name. Carl McDermott. But I, know what he do- I know what he does. Carl McDermott. What is he? He's the new Lord's Groundsman. Correct. Taking over from Mick Hunt. He is. And he's just started work, and I'm going to talk to him about pitches and working at Lords and what it's been like so far moving from the Aegeus Bowl, where, of course, he was for a number of years. So that's coming up next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.